So communion with God in thanks and praise. We're still in the prayer section, just coming at the issue of fellowship with God by our speaking to God in various ways. And now we're focusing on one of the ways you speak to God is in thanks and in praise. You are my God, and I give thanks to you. You are my God. I extol you. Develop a vocabulary like that. Thanks and extol are two words there. Build words like that into your language so that when you come to him, you don't have to slip into ruts. You have lots of of language. So I'm, I'm a Christian hedonist. I'm always trying to build my vocabulary lest I am stuck with one word like satisfied. Okay? So I want to be satisfied in God and cherish God and delight in God and be glad in God and rejoice in God and extol God and prize God. And I just keep trying to add, I get out my thesaurus sometimes. Thesaurus for praise, thesaurus for satisfied, thesaurus for happy. Because I want, I want my language to be fresh for people. I don't want it to just sound tired and old, bogged down in same old, same old. And pastors and, and anybody who wants their language to be helpful in any relationship needs to expend a little bit of effort to say thing another way. Say it another way. You have turned for me my morning into dancing You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness, my soul, that my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord, I will give thanks, thanks to you forever. So, the language of thanks and praise. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So as you go to God asking for things, thank him for things. You know, healthy, humble minds are thankful minds. Just thankful minds. And you can sow so many seeds of health into relationships by verbalizing gratitude verbalize gratitude in every relationship. Just before you say anything else, say something you're thankful for. And especially if it regards a person in a relationship. Sometimes uh, people have asked me, I know, I know you don't want us to puff you up, but if we like your sermon, what should we say? And I say, thank God. Thank God for whatever, and be specific. What help you got? Don't just say, good sermon, pastor. I mean, don't, you don't need a, or you're a good preacher, or whatever. Don't, that, that, that's not help me. That doesn't help you. But if God did something, if God said something, then draw attention to, to that and, and thank him for a specific thing that he, he did. G. Communion with God at certain times and places. Well, before we leave, thanks. Um, let me challenge you to really stretch here. Uh, now, this has pushed 80% of you to the absolute limit of tolerability. Um, but as you 
begin to form habits of personal and family or friendship devotion. Say, if you're not married and you have a a house, you meet together for dinner, or you have a small group or something, there's three or four of you, and or if you're family, and there's you and your wife, then there's you and your wife, and one kid, two kids, three kids, whatever, and as you're growing up together, and, and you're establishing patterns of family worship, build praise into it, and if you're willing to make the effort, sing together. I mean, there's probably not one couple in a million who sings together, Right? It's just awkward, right? Weird. <laughs> I just would challenge you to do it. I mean, my wife and I did not sing together for 20 years, all right? And then I just decided, we're going to sing together. <laughs> so, we were on an anniversary. How long ago was this? We've been married 43 years, 44 years. And uh, so, you know, 20 years ago or so. We're on an anniversary, and I... I took a little little piece of paper with him printed on it. And we read we read through the book of Colossians together because we tried to do something special on an anniversary, like take a whole morning to be in the Word. So read a chapter, pray, read a chapter, pray, read a chapter, pray, read a chapter, pray. It might take an hour to do that. And then when we're in, I said to her, you think we could try singing together? <laughs> of course, my wife, is, my wife is just totally compliant when it comes to spiritual things like this. Yeah, we try whatever you want to try. <laughs> and, and we did. And then we built it in at, at home. And so we sing it. I wish we could do better. I, I, nobody plays the guitar. You know, I, I wish if I could play the guitar, you know. <laughs> probably wouldn't improve it at all. So I'm, I'm holding out there this, this wild possibility that somewhere out from under the pressure of this seminar, you, you might dream of praising and thanking God. Or maybe there would be another way besides singing. But um, I think the Lord, if you, if you do it and you're just absolutely honest about it, that you're lousy singers and, and you're doing it because... You want to find a fresh way to express your love for him and your thanks to him. I just think he looks down with an absolutely beaming face upon those crummy sounds. (laughs) Okay, do what you want with that. (laughs) Communion with God at certain times and places. Okay, so this gets nitty-gritty about, okay, you've been talking about reading your Bible, you've been talking about meditation and about prayer. Any particular times and places? I mean, does it matter how long or when or how often? So here's, here's a couple of texts. Daniel 6.10. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed against praying to anybody but the king, he entered his house... Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued, this had been his habit, so he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. So as soon as the law is passed, you may not do this. He not only does it, he gets in front of a window. And does it, which gets him thrown in the lion's den. 
Now, all I'm drawing out here is not, not mainly the, the in-your-face civil disobedience, but rather the fact that that was his custom. So here's a man of God who was used mightily in a foreign land, and he regularly, three times a day, knelt down and prayed to God. So it is not contrary to godliness to have regularity in your prayer. That would be the least we could say, right? It is not contrary to a life of effectiveness and godliness to have regular times of prayer. Psalm 119, seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous ordinances. I know some people who um, on their reminders or their calendar put a little ding three times a day, every hour, whatever, and when it goes off, they pray. Just 30 seconds or whatever. That's another possibility, just to, to penetrate your day with prayer seven times a day. Okay, so let me just say some general comments. Given the fact that from the Bible, it looks as though at least there should be an openness to regularity. And I said last night that I don't think you'll stay married without discipline, and I don't think you'll stay married to God without discipline. Because if you say that the, the only alternative to legalism is doing things when you feel like it, you won't survive. If that's your mindset, the only alternative to legalism is doing things when you feel like it. The devil will love that. Oh, he will love that. Because he has his ways to shoot an arrow at just those moments when you have a window to read and you won't feel like it. So skip that one. And pretty soon you've gone a week, two weeks, and you don't feel like it ever. Now, what, what's happened there? What's happened is a, is a very short-sighted view and a very naive view of human nature. Everybody loves freedom and spontaneity and doing what we love to do, not what we have to do. Everybody does. That's what freedom feels like. What, what we also know is, given our sinfulness, given the reality of Satan, and given the nature of modern pressured, harried life, spontaneity can be killed easily, and it is preserved when we force time to ask God to awaken it again. So, I totally believe and have all my life since I was 16 or 15. My, my folks, that's where I start remembering is that age about 15. One of my folks gave me my first Bible. It said Johnny Piper on the front of it. And it was uh, uh, age 15, a King James Bible. My mother wrote in, this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. I've lifted it up in services so you could see that Bible. I remember that Bible and reading it every night, feeling like that's what you should do. And I, 
Most of the time I wanted to do it. I needed to do it. I was a a frightened, insecure, pimple-faced, nervous kid that needed God a lot. And so I I sought him in, in the Bible. And then when I went away to college, every morning I can remember trying to read before I went off to to class. And then when we were married, forming that, my personal reading in the morning, meet with Noel, and so on. So regularity of whatever you want to call it, devotions, quiet time, or whatever. You know, whatever, whatever you don't like to say, don't say. And call it something else. But I'm, I'm pleading with you to seriously consider a place and a time that is sacred to the Lord for the sake of spontaneity everywhere. So discipline for the sake of spontaneity. Uh, duty for the sake of delight and liberty. If, if you think otherwise about it, if you say the duty is the thing, God is happy with me because of the duty, then you're into legalism. If you get up from that moment of duty and what you feel good about is that you did it and not what you saw of him, now you're into legalism. See the difference? Is, is finishing your devotions, does finishing your devotions give you a sense of peace because the duty was done, the check mark was made, the notch was carved, or I saw that his grace was manifest in this fresh way that I had not noticed before, and it came home to me with power, and I will take that with me through the day. And the duty was just the encasement, just the time and the way that God could do that, and that's what you feel glad about. That's the difference between the duty done, I'm glad I did it, or the duty done so that in it God could work. Because... A farmer that doesn't till his gardens and weed it and water it, even when he doesn't feel like it, will not have the enjoyment of its fruit. Spontaneous fruit grows in the furrows that have been dug by discipline. And everybody knows that. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, um, everybody would love to pick up He's exaggerating with everybody, obviously, but would love to pick up Homer or Virgil and read the Odyssey or the, uh, what's the other one? Iliad. Read them spontaneously in the Greek and just enjoy the, the sound of the Greek and the meaning of the Greek. It's just one glitch. You have to spend three or five years learning Greek. And, and then you might have the pleasure. But you can't just pick it up. And the analogy he made was that's the way a lot of things are in life. If you want the pleasure, I mean, you watch an athlete and what they're able to do, gymnastics, for example. Can a human being do that? No, they can't. Not without about a thousand hours a year on the mat and on the bars, most of it not fun. But to stand with the, the, the silver or the gold or the bronze around your neck, having felt the exquisite coordination of muscles that God has given you, working to a, 
you know, a 9.9 nailed without a moving of the feet, that, that wouldn't come any other way. Same with the, I've often wished I had the pleasure of sitting at a piano and just making tunes or playing tunes that I love. It'll never happen. Because at six, I wanted to play in the dirt with my trucks. And, and my mama wanted me to take piano. She made me take piano for one year. I hated every minute of it. She didn't force me further. Probably that was wise. But she at least made an attempt to force me to, to gain that skill that today I would greatly enjoy. But I blew it and threw it away. And, and so all kinds of analogies in life show that discipline and delight are in, in rhythm with each other. They're not... They're not either or. So, yes, uh, in your apartment or in your house, find the place. It needs to be pretty secluded and find the time. And if you say, I don't, I, there is no time. Well, that's not true. You can skip breakfast. Which is more important? Breakfast or Bible? Or you probably could set the alarm 15 minutes early. There is time in your day. It's just a matter of what's the most important to you. H, never cease communion with God in prayer. So not just set times. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. What does pray without ceasing mean? Um, I'm, the, the, the least threatening answer would be that it means to be coming back to God often during the day. In other words, don't let yourself slip into a season where there's been prayerlessness for a long time. So pray without ceasing wouldn't necessarily mean every 30 seconds, but regularly. You have just a, a walk with him that is with with. Every fresh situation, a whispered, I need you, and I'm depending on you, and I'm thanking you. Just feel like you're walking in communion with him. I say that's the least threatening. There is something more threatening. I mean, that may be threatening to you that, whoa, I don't do that. You know, I pray in the morning, I pray at meals, but most of the rest of the day, I'm not thinking about praying. Well, you could probably do better. You could just walk in a, a whispering communion with the Lord in your heart regularly, more often than three times a day. But what if it meant really without ceasing? I mean, always. And this, this uh, is, is, seems outside our possibility. And it may be. It may, that may not be at all what it means. So I'm not pressing you on this. I'm just saying, be, let's be careful that we don't measure the possibilities of the meaning of that phrase with the capacities we presently feel. 
because your capacities for communion with God are all over the map on this, in this room. Some of you are capable of much more regularity and continuity than others are. And those who are not capable of that right now would read this and say, well, it can't mean that because that's not psychologically possible. And others would say, well, maybe more possible than you think. And what I, what I wonder is, let's say in the age to come when we're raised from the dead and we have new bodies, might it not be possible that when you're working on a computer program or a math equation in heaven, in the age to come, on the new earth, and you're doing what God wired you to do, and I think we will do practical things like that. Here, it feels like if I'm going to give all my mind to solve a mathematical equation or solve a, a, solve a civil engineer or street planner and try to figure out how the traffic works in this city so that things flow best. I can give all my effort to that. I can't be praying while I'm doing that. I have to think about what I'm doing. I I totally resonate with that. And I'm just saying that would it be that in the age to come, God would so wire us that full attention, full attention to the task at hand would not exclude a, a, a conscious reliance upon God. Conscious reliance upon God that is 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 prayer is prayerful in its spirit. I'm I'm trusting you now. I'm, I'm loving you, and and it wouldn't feel like they have to alternate. Think about the problem, pray. Think about the problem, pray. Think about the problem, pray. Which which is what it feels like now. And if that's true, if you can imagine such a thing in the age to come, I'm just saying, it might be really something to pray toward more of that now. Give me an analogy. It's not exactly the same, but I read one time in Spurgeon that he could pray for eight people at once while he's preaching. And I just laughed as a young preacher. I said, that's crazy. Nobody can pray for eight people at once, period, let alone while you're preaching. So he's saying that as he looks out, he sees Mary and Joe and Ron and Kathy And he's whispering prayers to God for all of them at once while he's preaching. I I just shook my head. That's crazy. Well, here I am now, 33 years into my ministry, and I can can do that with one person. (laughs) But to me, that's amazing. So I'm preaching, and I see somebody who looks discouraged or disinterested, or maybe she's sleeping on her boyfriend's shoulder. Or whatever, and while I still preach, I can pray for that person. I got two things going on in my head at once. Isn't that amazing? Now he's got eight. It doesn't seem nearly as impossible to me as it did because now I can do one. I think that's as far as I'll get. But I'm real happy about that, that I can actually keep my mouth going, mean what I say, know I'm saying it, connect it with the Bible. And have Jane and her marital situation in my mind and asking that what I'm saying will help her. I can do that. Now, if, if, that, if I can do one and Spurgeon can do eight, more things are possible than you know as far as how the mind is able to pray all the time. No, no, no. I don't know. Uh, I, I don't want to make you feel guilty and say, oh, we can't rise to that standard. Just uh, ask God to give you as much as he can give you. 
We want to be in communion with him. We, if, we, if we can, it would be wonderful not to walk in and out of fellowship with God. In our communion with God, we depend on the Spirit to enable and shape our responses to the Father through the Son in prayer. So here is a focus on the fact that as we're praying, using the Word, it's the Holy Spirit that helps us pray as we ought to pray. And you can think of texts that teach that. Ephesians 6.18. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. What does it mean to pray at all times in the Spirit? I think the word in there probably is instrumental, meaning uh, in, in the influence of the Spirit, under the guidance of the Spirit, so that it would mean uh, as you begin to pray, you consciously rely upon the help and guidance of the Holy Spirit. You don't say, I've got this under control. I can say anything I want to say. The Father wants to hear from me. I'm his child. You also say, oh, Holy Spirit, Use the words of uh, Romans. I don't know how I ought to pray. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know how we ought to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So there's this consciousness that, yes, the Father wants to hear from me. Yes, I have some things I want to tell him, but no, I should not presume in any way to be self-reliant here. I should rely upon the Spirit and His guiding me and helping me pray, helping me to have faith in prayer and helping me to know what to say in prayer. And one specific application, the context of Romans 8.26 comes right after saying, um, and not only the creation, but we ourselves groan inwardly waiting for the redemption of our bodies. Now, in this hope we were saved, but who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know how to pray as we ought. So the connection there is groaning in the body under the suffering of this age, waiting for the redemption of our bodies. We don't know how to pray as we ought. What would be the connection there? And I think the connection is how many times the people you love are sick or you're sick and you're not sure which way it's going to go here. When do you stop praying for healing? Either at death or when the Lord has simply said to a Johnny Erickson Tata, Johnny, you're going to glorify me as a paraplegic so you don't need to ask anymore. Stop asking. I'm not going to take away your paralysis. Well, that's not an eat. I mean, how, do you, how does she know? God can heal a paraplegic. God could heal my eyes. I said, Lord, should I, should I keep praying, Lord, help me not to have to wear these? 
Or should I just say, no, no, that's part of aging. He's not going to do that. He's going to do it through glasses. Just a hundred kinds of prayers like that where you just don't know. I think that's what he's getting at here. So whether it's needing his help to pray in the right spirit or needing his help to pray the right content or needing guidance in the application of who's well and who's sick, you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Pray in or by the Holy Spirit. I have no, by the way, I I don't think there's any good reason to take this to refer to something like speaking in tongues. If if a few of you may be wondering that because of the tradition you come from. I'm not against speaking in tongues. I don't think that's what this is about. No contextual reason to think of it that way. We need the Holy Spirit to pray as we ought. Together here, let me just do a little survey here. It's always interesting to me. Uh, raise your hand if you're not a regular attender or a member at Bethlehem. Not. Okay, that's what I thought. Just about everybody, it looks like. Um, thank you so much. If, you're coming, if you came from out of state, raise your hand. That's amazing. That's amazing. If you came from uh, another country, like Canada or Brazil, <laughs> thank you so much for coming. That's great, yeah. So we really, really appreciate you making the effort to come. And I've, I've prayed for you, especially I feel a, when I hear that people come a long way and paid money and <laughs> I think, whoa, God, please do something really good for them so they feel like... Like it's really worth their effort to be here because I, I sure enjoy these times and I want, I want you to benefit from them too. Okay, a few questions here before we, we uh, do our last section on fasting. The, the, by the way, the appendices at the end of your outline, I don't have any intention to, to do those, but those will be there for you this afternoon online if you want to get them. Um, in this present day, we lack war, persecution, famine, hardships in such a culture of easy living, how can we stay desperate and hungry for God without growing complacent? Um, Let's be careful first because my guess is there are people tuning into this for whom that would be not true. They are in war. They are in persecution. Isn't, I mean, the Internet is something that people could be watching this in China right now. Okay, so I want to be really sensitive to the fact that this is, this is true for a lot of us Americans. Our life is, is very posh and very easy, although even in our comfortable non-persecution, non-war situation, there are heartaches abounding of... Uh, mental and relational kind. And so nobody is without sorrow and, and suffering. And those will help to drive us to God if we let them, if we don't become embittered by them. But this is the question, and it's totally a legitimate question, of when things are going well, what do you do to maintain a hunger for God when it looks like you're getting along just fine without him? And... You're happy with your job and you're happy with your family and you're happy with your health and you're happy with your leisure and, and, oh yes, there's a God. I should pay some attention. And I think that's one of the places where the regularity 
of being in his word because the word is going to tell you that's an illusion. If you are being satisfied now, if your heart is being satisfied by the new, the new toys you just bought and the people around you and the job and its esteem and money, then you are being satisfied by an illusion. You are not made to be satisfied by things short of God. And you maintain that awareness and that intensity with the word. The word is constantly blowing the fog away from those illusions and they look like the illusions they are and you go hard after him and say, I want you. You know, there are two ways that the devil kills your heart, pain and pleasure. Pain can make you angry at God. Pleasure can make you indifferent to God. And he'll, he'll, he's just a shrewd operator and he'll just try to discern which are you most vulnerable to right now. Do you need some pain in your life to make you mad at God or do you need some more pleasure in your life to make you indifferent to God? And he will do whatever he can. So, you know, a lot of people think the devil's showing up when things go bad. No, no. The devil's showing up when things go good too. And God is there in the bad with a different design and God is there in the good with a different design. He means for the good to produce gratitude and a tasting of himself in and through his gifts. And he means for the bad to cast you upon him. Second Corinthians 1, 8, we were so unbearably crushed, we despaired of life itself. That was to make us rely on God who raises the dead. That's why he brings discipline and suffering into our, into our lives. So stay in the word and interpret your experiences by God's perspective on them rather than your own or the world's perspective. What would you say to a Christian who is uh, terrified to fast because of struggles with body image and eating disorder tendencies uh, in the past? Super question. Um, I would say fast with something other than food. Don't play fast and loose with food. Uh, if, if you have gotten some victory in your eating disorder and you're, you're seeing yourself in realistic light now and not in the illusions of overweight that you once had uh, and, and you're not purging and binging and starving and all this and, and you're, you're making it, don't mess with that, okay? Don't mess with that. Fasting, in, and we're going to go there now, but I'll say here, the, the principle of fasting is that something totally legitimate and good from God is laid aside for a season in order to say that God is more important than that good gift. Do it with television. Do it with Twitter. Do it with blogs. Do it with Facebook. Do it with sleep. Do it with whatever. But if, if food is just hovering there, ready to master you at any moment, I wouldn't mess with that. There's, there's nothing in the Bible, I don't think, that says in order to be a good, obedient Christian, you have to build starvation into your life every now and then when that's been your killer all your life. So relax about that, okay? And, and look for other ways to be a, uh, a, fast, a faster 
The principle of fasting is not to, you know, to prove how much food you can go without and still be happy. It's, it's, it's a principle of elevating God for a season in a little bit of an artificial way because you've got to eat and stay alive. You can't, God, food is good. He gives it to you to enjoy. So there's kind of this artificial season where you say no to something in order to just say to God with your stomach or with whatever longing is going to happen if you don't watch any any Downton Abbey or whatever, um, then you, you, um, you say, God, now you're so precious to me. I want you more, and I will say the more with the rumblings of my stomach or the rumblings of my desire for Facebook or the rumblings of my desire for this favorite TV program that I'm not going to watch for two weeks or whatever. Uh, you referred to prayer and fasting, Ray, the sec- about the second coming, but would you please address the role of prayer and fasting in the reviving of the church and the subsequent outflow of the gospel grace to the nations for their ingathering and some texts, etc.? And um, I only mentioned the second coming because that's the focus of Matthew 15 where we built our Tuesday, first Tuesday fast. You're absolutely right that there are other more pressing things in our immediate experience for fasting for, and I'll I'll get to that in a minute. I, I think fasting is a way with regard to any particular ache in your heart that is a godly ache, ache for the conversion of a loved one, ache for unity in your church, ache for your child's marriage to hold together, ache for uh, your friend to get a job, ache for missionaries who are in prison somewhere in Iraq. These, these longings that you have and you feel, I want to I lay hold on God for him and, and that would lead you to some season of unspecified fasting perhaps. So yes, to the advance of the gospel and the reviving of the church, I would totally support building fasting in for those. The mother is a strong Christian. Father believes in some sort of higher power. Daughter has expressed a concern to her father and got shut down and accused of judgment. Any advice for the daughter on how to communicate my concerns without passing judgment? Um, the only thing different here, I suppose, than I would say that with regard to what I said earlier, I Young people make different choices than their parents have made. In this one, the case is a dad who's into a higher power and not a solid Christian. Is to, you know, one of the one of the things we do in life, it seems like, is ask God to bring about spontaneous occasions when we might say something helpful and significant. You're in a relationship at work or you're in a relationship with your dad or your sister or roommate and, and you say, God, I pray that, that, that you'd bring about a, a good time that something natural would happen. We could talk about this. And I think that's fine. But why not also say, I should ask that person for the opportunity to talk. So over lunch, late at night in the room, and you just ask for permission. You don't intrude yourself. You say, 
could we talk uh, about some things that I've been thinking about? I want to hear what you have to say, and, and I have a couple of things I'd like to say. Could we just carve out 15 or 30 minutes or an hour to talk? So you go to your dad. This, this person here would, would do that for the dad. Can we just talk over lunch or whatever? And in a, in a totally non-inflammatory moment, I mean, it might become inflammatory, but in this moment, you've carved out a place where he hasn't just said something that made you angry, and you haven't just done something that made him angry. This is a neutral moment as far as the present moment is concerned. And then you just lay out to him some of the concerns that you have and you do it with as much respect as possible, and you do it for, for his good. You say, I'm just concerned that where you're going with this higher power could lead to some really destructive things in the relationship with mom and, and with us and whatever. So the, the principle there is just to encourage all of us, whether it's in evangelism or family relationships, ask for Focused moments of conversation about the issue at hand. Would you remind us what APTAT is? Yes, I would. Um, APTAT is what I use before many major things like preaching or funeral in an hour and a half. A, admit that I can do nothing. John fifteen eleven. without me you can do nothing. P, Pray for help. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Matthew seven twelve. Ask. I mean, pray. Uh, A P T. Trust a specific promise. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I'll help you. I'll strengthen you. I'll hold you up with the right hand of my righteousness. Isaiah forty one ten. Trust a specific promise for this next. And then the A is act. Do it. Do what you have to do. Make the phone call. Preach the sermon. Lead the class. Run the race. Buy the car. (coughs) Whatever is the challenge that you're not sure about and you're asking for God's help. And then once you've acted, T, thank him for his help. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 100. A-P-T-A-T. I I think A-P-T-A-T is how you walk according to the Spirit. It's how you walk by faith. But we're on fasting for the next 35 minutes. Carl Lundquist was the president of Bethel University when I came there as a teacher. And here's what he said. My own serious consideration of fasting as a spiritual discipline began as a result of a visit to Dr. Jun Gon Kim in Seoul, Korea. Is it true, I asked him, that you spent 40 days in fasting prior to the evangelism crusade in 1980 when Billy Graham was to come? Yes, he responded, it is true. Dr. Kim was chairman of the crusade, expected to bring a million people to the Yoido Plaza. You may remember that. It happened. But six months before the meeting, the police informed him they were revoking their permission for the crusade. Korea at that time was in political turmoil, and Seoul was under martial law. 
the officers decided they could not take the risk of having so many people together in one place. So Dr. Kim and some associates went to a prayer mountain and there spent 40 days before God in prayer and fasting for the crusade. Then they returned and made their way to the police station. Oh, said the officer when he saw Dr. Kim, we have changed our minds and you can have your meeting. As I went back to the hotel, Lundquist says, I reflected that I have never fasted like that. Perhaps I had never desired a work of God with the same intensity. His body is marked by many 40-day fasts during his long spiritual leadership of God's work in Asia. Also, however, I haven't seen the miracles of doc- that Dr. Kim has. So here's what Lundquist did. He started a, a group called the Order of the Burning Heart, had stationery and everything. He died of skin cancer here several a couple of decades ago. I can't remember how long it's been now. Instead of taking an hour for lunch, I used the time to go to a prayer room, usually the flame room in nearby Bethel Theological Seminary. So over at, over at Bethel on the second floor of the seminary near the office there, there's this little round room. At least there used to be. I haven't been there in a long time. And there I spend my lunch break in fellowship with God and in prayer. And I have learned a very personal dimension to what Jesus declared I have meat to eat that you know not of. So that's the testimony of of Dr. Lundquist, meeting somebody who had walked in fasting, feeling like, oh, I've never even built that in my life at all, went back as the president of Bethel, and for the remainder years of his life set aside his lunches to fast. I suppose that's when he didn't have meetings or whatnot, but regularly going in there instead of eating food, eating Bible. I have meat to eat. I have food to eat that you do not know about. When Jesus said that, he didn't mean physical food. He meant my communion with God is nourishing to my soul. I get food and strength from God by the word and prayer that others find from food, physical food. So here's some texts. You want to build your understanding of fasting on the Bible, not tradition or Carl Lundquist. Whenever you fast, and right there is a very important word, not if, but when. That made a difference to me when I was assessing whether this is normative for my life. In no specific proportion, just should be there in some measure. Whenever you fast, so he doesn't say if and he doesn't say often to do it. It's very loose here. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. They like the praise of men. They're going to get the praise of men. And when they get it, that's all they get. But you, when you fast, anoint your head. So that would mean, you know, fix it the way you normally do. Wash your face. Don't let it look all tear-stained. So that your fasting will not be noticed by men. Will not be noticed by men. Which is why talking about this is delicate but by your father who is in secret. Yes, want your father to see your fasting. When he sees your fasting, he is inclined to reward it. And we'll, we'll see why that is. Your father who sees what is done in secret will, will reward you. So it's right to say, God will see my hunger for him and he will satisfy it. 
Matthew 9. When the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast? So it's the disciples of John the Baptist here. And they're coming to Jesus and they ask, why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. So John taught us to fast and your disciples aren't fasting. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? So what kind of an answer is that? He's saying, fasting is an, an aching, yearning, longing for something you don't have. Um, the wedding guests don't act that way when the bridegroom shows up. They party. Okay? Now, if the bridegroom got hit by a car and was in the hospital and couldn't make it to the wedding, they'd, they'd behave differently. They'd ache for him to be able to be there. Or if he was in Iraq and, and he's in a shootout and he's supposed to be home in two weeks to marry his girlfriend who's waited for him for 18 months and you don't know if he's going to make it through the firestorm, you'd fast. Okay? But that's not the situation. I'm here, he's saying. I'm here. I'm Jesus on the planet loving my, my disciples, trying to get them ready for when I'm gone. That's, that's the situation. Then they will fast. Now, um, jump ahead for, for a minute. Oh, maybe it's farther ahead than I thought. Oh, okay, forget that. There's a quote from Richard Foster, and it must be farther ahead. So, this right here, then they will fast, is I think as close as you get to uh, Jesus saying we should be fasting while he's gone. Because he's saying to the disciples of John, the reason my disciples aren't fasting is because I'm presently with them like a bridegroom at a wedding and I'm going to be taken away. I'm going to go back to heaven and then they will fast. Are we? Then when I'm gone, they will fast. That's why I think it should be built into our lives in some way. That text right there. Now, it gets complicated. He's going he's to say another reason why John's fasting, John the Baptist's fasting, isn't appropriate. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. So the analogy, I think, is the old garment is the old fasting, and the patch of unstrung cloth is the new presence of Jesus. This is new. You try to put Jesus and his new reality on an old, it doesn't work. It doesn't You, you put it in the wash, this shrinks, it tears that, it doesn't work. Or he uses another example. Neither is new wine, so this is now Jesus and his presence and his kingdom and his work and his salvation, the new, new wine put into old wineskins. So the old wineskins would be the fasting. That's the context. John's fasting. If it is, the, sky, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. 
So there's a, there's a disconnect between the old forms of the Old Testament and the old fasting and the, the kingdom that's here in Jesus. They, they don't mix. But new wine is put in fresh wineskins. Now the question is, would that include fasting? Or is fasting gone? It's just part of the old wineskin and the old garment. And you've got to get rid of them because you can't, they don't mix. Fasting should not be part of the new kingdom reality. Is that what he's saying? Or is he saying that the, the, the fresh wineskins might be a fresh fasting? Which you can tell is what I think. Richard Foster said that, in the verse 15, is perhaps the most important statement in the New Testament on whether Christians should fast today. Okay, and what he has in mind is this right here. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away and then they will fast. So I asked this, the question, what about the tension between verses 15 and 17? Verse 15 they will fast. In verse 17, the old fasting is like old wineskins. It's got to be gotten rid of. You can't, you can't put the new wine in the, new, in the old, old wineskins. And my answer is, the great central decisive act of salvation for us today is past, not future. And on the basis of that past work of the bridegroom... Nothing can ever be the same again. This is new wine accomplished at the cross. The blood is shed. The lamb is slain. The punishment of our sins is executed. Death is defeated. The spirit is sent. The wine is new. It's new. We're not just, we don't live in the Old Testament religion. Pre-Messiah. Pre-atonement. Pre-justification accomplished. And the old fasting mindset is simply not adequate. Christian fasting, so I'm creating a category here now, Christian fasting rests on all this finished work of the bridegroom who now has come. The yearning that we feel for revival or awakening or deliverance from corruption or the presence of the bridegroom is not merely longing and aching. The first fruits of what we long for have already come. So the bridegroom has showed up. That wasn't true in the Old Testament. He has showed up. He's entered the world. He's lived among us. He's taught us. He's died for us. He's conquered death. He's provided righteousness. He's risen from the dead. He reigns and intercedes for us. That transaction happened. It wasn't true in the Old Testament. So fasting back here was a yearning for, and that hadn't happened yet. And so this fasting wasn't based on that having happened yet. This is, you can't do Christian fasting in the old John the Baptist way. The first fruits of what we long for have already come. The down payment of what we yearn for is already paid. The fullness that we are longing for and fasting for has appeared in history and we have beheld his glory, John says. It is not merely future. 
We have tasted the manifestation of Christ's glory. And our fasting is not because we are hungry for something we have not tasted. Underline that. The new thing about Christian fasting is that we have tasted the Son of God. He has come. We've seen his glory. We've listened to him talk. We've watched him die for us. Our sins have been borne by him. Our fasting has tasted that, loves that, rests in that, is satisfied by that. So, so if you, if, it's not Christian fasting if that's not where you start. So you don't start with an empty heart. Christian fasting does not start with an empty heart. It starts with a heart that's got Jesus in it, got the Holy Spirit in it, is forgiven and loved and accepted. And now, is there any place left for fasting with that much already? But because the new wine of Christ's presence is so real, so satisfying, that is what makes our fasting Christian. It's part of the new wineskin. So my answer is yes, there is a place for fasting because he said, when the bridegroom is taken away, they will fast. And my argument is they will fast differently. They won't fast as though it hadn't happened. They will fast on the basis of it has happened. I have eaten and drunk deeply of Christ. My sins are forgiven. I'm not fasting for that. I have the Holy Spirit. I'm not fasting for that. I have Jesus. I'm not fasting for that. What makes fasting Christian is that we're just so there, we're loved, we're accepted, we're adopted. Christ is in us, the Holy Spirit is in us. Now, now, do we want something? Well, we want more. We want more of him and we want his action to be shown more fully in the world. We want his mission to advance. We want a hundred things to happen on the basis of what we already have. And so, yes. Yes, I argue there's a place for fasting, and it should be very, very God-focused, as these verses say. When you fast, don't look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces. Their fasting may be seen by men, when, but truly I say to you, they receive their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, uh, anoint your head wash your, your face, that your fasting may not be seen by men, but by your Father, who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. You know, this is amazing. It, it says that about almsgiving, and it says it about praying, and it says it about fasting, Matthew 6. So when you give alms, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. In other words, give so quietly, not even your hands know you're giving, let alone everybody else around you. Let God see your giving. Don't let people see your giving. When you're praying, don't stand on the street corner and pray with long words. Go into your closet and shut the door. Let God see you're praying. When you fast, wash your face, comb your hair, and fast, and don't let people know you're fasting. Let God see. God, God, God. So the point of of almsgiving and praying and fasting is Godward. I want God to see. I want God to answer. I am not trying to be praised by people. This is a huge temptation in the ministry or in the Christian life. You want people to... Do you want people to hear how much time you spend in prayer? Do you want people to hear how much time you spend reading your Bible? Do you want people to hear how disciplined you are in your fasting routines? And yes, we do want people to hear because we crave praise. 
And those texts are just so powerful to say, look, the test here is, are you after God or are you after the approval of men? There are a few things we humans crave more than people's approval. Good night is powerful. I, I sometimes think it's way more powerful than sex or money. If, if you get enough people around you saying you're great, that feels good. That feels really good. And so you'll just do anything to, to keep it going. You become addicted to it. Can't say anything that would displease anybody. Can't do anything. You're starting to be a second-hander all the time, saying and doing what will get you the approval of the people around you, and now you're into addiction with a massive dose of human need for praise. And, and that text is just saying, break that with quiet almsgiving, secluded prayer, and anonymous fasting so that it's all to God and for God, and not for people to know about. Now, here's an illustration of it in the life of the early church in Acts, where it's, you know, your next question would be, well, can you ever do it in a group then? Right? If you're supposed to wash your face and, and comb your hair and not let anybody know you're fasting, how could you ever do it in a group or as a church? And, and the answer is, what Jesus is getting at is motive. Do you crave, do you want to be seen by, by others? It is possible to be seen by others and not want to be seen by others. Same thing with almsgiving. On the one hand, it says, when you give alms, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Chapter 5 says, let, let, your, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father. Well, which is it? The good deeds of almsgiving should be so quiet, nobody knows you're doing it, and you should do it to be seen by others so that they will give glory to your Father. Which must mean that there is a way to do good deeds that necessarily must be seen. You can't stop and help somebody change their tire when it's 40 below zero at one o'clock at night and not have them know it. But you should stop. But when you stop, your mindset shouldn't be, I'm going to tell a lot of people about this. (laughs) And they'll be really impressed with how I sacrificed my evening in love so that I will get the praise as a godly person. If that's your mindset, you've just wasted it. It, It's not going to be of any moral credit to you at all. You want to, but you do want that person to know you have a God in heaven who loves them and loves you and supports them and supports you. And you want your kind of loving to be an evidence of his kind of loving so that they glorify your father in heaven. That's a very tricky way to live, isn't it? Walking between wanting to be seen by men for ego reasons and wanting men to see God That's tough, but that's our calling. With fasting, they were in a group. Now, the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius, Cyrene, um, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul, this pretty high-powered group here, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting, 
and praying. They laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now, most of you are not from Bethlehem right now, but those of you from Bethlehem know that when I preached on this, April of 2011, that was my text. I called it the Antioch moment. I said, Bethlehem is in an Antioch moment. I am believing God should replace me at Bethlehem before I am too stupid to know I need replacing. So now is a good time to do this. And, and I said, we got these issues. We got, we got structural issues and we got relational issues and we got transition issues. Those three big Antioch moments. And I said, I would like to summon all the elders to pray every Thursday morning for an hour and uh, as God leads them in fasting and do that, do that right there. They were, they were worshiping the Lord. They were worshiping and they were fasting. So the elders met for six weeks. And what God did, I mean, at, when I preached that sermon, I had zero idea who my replacement would be or how it could happen without a big upheaval. I've been there for 33 years. That's not easy, right? So 33 years, and how can, I don't know how this is going to happen. And I said, I remember this sentence. I said, when our elders don't know what to do, they know what to do about not knowing what to do. Pray and fast. And when we were done, doors began to open. And today, <laughs> we are ready and moving with an excitement that is unbelievable. The giving is better than it's been in seven years while I'm leaving. Could it be better? Jason comes out of nowhere and gets a, a concealed ballot vote of 800 people with only eight no's. And they probably mischecked. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but it's just incredible. I, I traced that back to the Lord looking down on 40 elders on their knees for one hour every Thursday morning trying to create that moment in, in their hearts, saying, God, we don't know how to do this. We've never done this before, replaced a 33-year tenured pastor. And we don't even know who it's going to do it. We don't know the process to do it. We don't know if he should quit and then find him. We don't know if, if we, we still know anything here. Help us. And so here we are, and he, he's helped us. He, he said, not set aside Barnabas and Saul, he said, set aside Jason. And if you knew the backstory of some of this and how God had been working in Jason and in other ways, you would be even more amazed. So I totally believe in this. And, of course, uh, my telling you that story might be sinful. <laughs> It might have elements of imperfection in it because I'm boasting that we did the right thing and, uh, and, and now you should be, praise us about that. So just reckon that's a possibility right now that I've just wrecked my reward entirely. <laughs> um, but you take risks like that. I don't think our elders felt that way at all. I don't think they felt uppity at all. I think they felt desperate because we just had never done it before. We still feel desperate. We're not done with this process, and we're seeking him in, in those ways still. We just prayed on Thursday when we gathered. The elders still do it once a month now instead of every week. D, the essence of fasting is hunger for God. Isaiah, ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. 
You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that your soul may live. So God invites us to come and eat what is free from him. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled when I fed the 5,000. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for, for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we are doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe on him who he has sent. And by believing, you are eating that food. So don't work for the food that perishes. Work for the food which endures to eternal life. So in your life, yes, you must have the food that perishes. And God means for you to enjoy it. It says that in First in Second Timothy 4. God means for you to enjoy his good gifts and by giving him thanks and sanctifying it with the word of God and prayer. But he longs for you to be satisfied with another kind of food. Namely, man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And communion with God through his word is what he longs for. And when we fast, we are saying to God with our stomachs, that's how much we want that to happen. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. So how does feasting and fasting magnify God? Because you should, in this age where the bridegroom has come and the kingdom has been established and the Holy Spirit as a down payment has been poured out into your life and the love of God is surging through your heart, you cannot only fast. It would be an offense to God if all you did was fast and never feast. Bread magnifies Christ in two ways. By being eaten with gratitude for his goodness and by being forfeited out of hunger for God himself. That's how both magnify God. When we eat, we taste the emblem of our heavenly food, the bread of life. And when we fast... We say, I love the reality above the emblem. If you, if you eat lunch today, just a little while, and you taste it as the emblem of the reality that satisfies your soul, the eating itself will be good and right and properly delightful. And then if you skip supper to say, Thank you for the emblem at lunch, but 
I need you more than I need food. I just want to say it with this one meal. And I'm going to read the Bible for 45 minutes here instead of eating. And what I mean by that 45 minutes is the reality is more important to me than the emblem, which is also good and also an honor to you. Don't, don't become sick here. It, it takes a really unusual work of God to make a Christian who can navigate properly enjoying food and properly forfeiting food. It's just a, a healthy way to do both. Never, never criticizing others who have a different pattern and never boasting in the pattern that you've settled on. When we eat... And when we fast, we say, I love the reality above the emblem. In the heart of the saint, both eating and fasting are worship. Both, both magnify Christ. Both send the heart grateful and yearning to the giver. Does your eating send you to the giver? And does your fasting send you to the giver? They both should. Each has its appointed place and each has its danger. The danger of eating is that we fall in love with the gift. And the danger of fasting is that we belittle the gift and glory in our willpower. There's dangers everywhere. Landmines everywhere in the Christian life. So we wrap it up with this. How fasting glorifies God and why God rewards it. Fasting is peculiarly suited to glorify God in, his, in this way. It is fundamentally an offering of emptiness to God in hope. So when you're hungry and your stomach is growling and your head is aching, I mean, fasting has very different effects on different people. You can get a headache. You can get nauseated. You have to be careful, and I'm not asking any of you to make yourself sick or to um, get yourself in the hospital or something, and especially if you've got uh, diabetes or Something like that. You've got to be so careful. There's no pressure here to make yourself sick or to take risks with your health. We've settled that already a few minutes ago with regard to other ways you can fast besides, besides food. But it is a, a, a longing, an aching, a hunger. It's discomfort. It's not meant to be comfortable. And the discomfort is, is how you feel when you're not getting your food. And what you're saying to God is that much discomfort, that much longing and aching, I want to just transpose onto you, not food. I'm feeling it for food and I'm saying it for you. That's what I mean by this fast. Father, I am empty, but you are full. I am hungry. You are the bread of heaven. I am thirsty. You are the fountain of life. I am weak, but you are strong. I am poor. You are rich. I am foolish. You are wise. I am broken. You are whole. I am dying. You are stead- your steadfast love is better than life. And when God sees this, this confession, this meaning of your fasting, this confession of need, this expression of trust, he acts because the glory of his all-sufficient grace is at stake. The final answer is that God rewards fasting because fasting expresses the cry of the heart that nothing on earth can satisfy my soul besides God. God must reward this cry because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him and he means to get glory from our being satisfied in him. Concluding summary. How the hungry handmaid... Fasting 
serves our faith. Joy in God is the strength to walk with Jesus from the wilderness to the cross and into eternal life. But maintaining that joy against its most subtle and innocent rivals is a lifelong struggle. And in that struggle, fasting, the humble, hungry handmaid of faith, is an emissary of grace. She comes to every fast with the same words. Though the fig tree should not blossom and fields yield no food, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. And some of you know that's the text that Noel and I had read at our wedding almost 44 years ago now. Though the fig tree should not blossom in this marriage, though the fields yield no food, we will exult in the Lord and not in the blossom, not in the food. We will rejoice in the God of, of our salvation. It was, a, it was a wonderful and right way to begin a marriage. Life isn't always a bed of roses. There are thorns. And if you establish from the outset, God is my food. And the pleasures of sex and the pleasures of having children, the pleasures of deepening friendship, those are all secondary. And they come and they go. But God never goes. And therefore, I don't ever have to be starved because he satisfies. I'll close with this testimony from Korea. More recent times, the evangelical church in South Korea has taught the rest of the world a lesson in prayer and fasting. The first Protestant church <coughs> was planted in Korea in 1884. Get the, get the time frame here. What's that? 130 years ago. 100 um, years later, there were 30,000 churches. That's an average of 300 new churches a year for 100 years in South Korea. Today, evangelicals comprise 30% of the population. There's not a story like that anywhere on the planet, anywhere else that I know of. 300 new churches a year from nothing. 1884, a non-Christian, totally non-Christian country. Today, 30% evangelical and that kind of pace, not just for 10 years or 20 or 30 or 40, but for 100 years. God has used many means to do this great work. One of them is a recovery, not just of dynamic prayer, but of fasting prayer. In the OMS, Overseas Missionary Society, used to be called that anyway, churches alone um, churches, in the OMS churches alone, more than 20,000 people have completed a 40-day fast, usually at one of their prayer houses or prayer mountains. 
I don't know what God's you know, purpose is for the church in America, whether we will survive uh, or whether we'll be just a, America will be a footnote in history. But it seems to me that one of the means he might use in your own personal awakening and the awakening and reviving and intensifying of the worship and ministry of your church would be that you and, and out from you increasing numbers of others would build into your lives a kind of meditation on the Word of God and a kind of prayer over the Word of God and a kind of fasting for the fullness of God that would result in an extraordinary level of walking with Him that the world needs very, very badly. Let's pray. So, Father, thank you for your help in these hours together. Thank you for those who've come a long way, and I pray that they would grow deep with you and that it would prove to be so lastingly helpful in their souls that it would have been worth it to make the effort to come. And for all of us, Lord, whether near or far, pour out a spirit of hunger for yourself. May you be our bread. May you be our living water. May you be our rock on which to Stand. Would you satisfy the souls of your people? And out of that satisfaction, would we worship you as we ought and serve you as we ought and love people as we ought with a lavish overflow of what you've given us? Show us the place of meditation, prayer, and fasting in this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.